So last week we uh, began the, the chapter 12 of Hebrews and we talked about how Jesus is a better example. He gives us a better example or he ran a better race, I think is what we said. And we, we, we saw that basically after chapter 11 in Hebrews where the, the writer is kind of giving all these Old Testament examples of people who lived by saving faith, he then kind of moves on in chapter 12 to say, these guys were great examples, and since they went before us, they're kind of witnesses or testifying to how good God is. They can testify that he's worth following after, but the person we really look to is Jesus. And so they said really clearly, right? Therefore, in verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. And so the, the writer wants to make sure that we recognize that, that we are called to run this race. We're not just called to be spectators at a race. We're not just called to understand the rules of the race. We're actually called to run. And really the section we're looking at today is, is the practical therefore connected to that. And it's important that we recognize it's Jesus that we're following in this. It says specifically, looking unto Jesus in verse 2, who endured the cross. In verse 3, who endured such hostility from sinners. In verse 7, it says that we should endure chastening. And we talked last week about the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, endured chastening for our benefit. That the chastening that belonged to us was upon Him at the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could be right with the Father. And so Jesus sets this example. He's the one that we look to. He's the one that we trust for power and strength to run this race. But the race indeed has to be run. We're called to actually put one foot in front of the other. We're called to run this race. So we need to think about how do we put feet to our faith. We need to think about from this text, how do we actually run this race? What does it look like to run this race? What are the things that we need to think about? What are the things that we need to do? And so if we pick it up in verse 12, the writer says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now there's two things going on here. One is he's, making a, he's referring to an Old Testament uh, section of Scripture, Isaiah 35, which we'll look at in a second. But also he's kind of using this as a metaphor. He's been using this kind of race metaphor. And so the picture here is this picture of someone who's running a race and they hit the wall. Do you guys know what I mean by the wall? If you ever ran before, did any kind of cardiovascular exercise, you know what the wall is. The wall is when you feel like, I can't go another step. And everyone who hits that wall knows, what do you have to do? Go another step, and then another step. You have to push through that wall. And what actually happens physiologically is you push through, new set of endorphins are released, whoo, and you hit that runner's high, and you can keep going. And so this is kind of what the, the, the metaphor is looking. You've got to push through this. You feel like giving up. You can't give up. But what's interesting is the context of Isaiah 35. should be on the screen. Isaiah 35 says this. The, the, the prophet Isaiah writes this to God's people, the Israelites. He says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with singing and joy. The glory of Lebanon, Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. Now, he's talking about a situation where um, these people in Israel, they're waiting to sort of 
really inhabit fully the promised land. They're wanting to know what it means to actually be fully in the promised land. And because of persecution and also because of bad choices that they've made, they're kind of pushed out to the wilderness places. They're in a place where it's difficult, it's dry, it's not too beautiful. And so Isaiah is, is given, has been given poetry for basically 35 chapters to encourage God's people that, listen, it's going to get better. Some good things are going to happen. In fact, he says, listen, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fear-hearted or fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, will recompense, will be the, the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, this is important because when, when the, the writer of Hebrews quotes this section or part of this section, he's wanting to make a point. He's wanting to say something very similar to what Isaiah was saying to God's covenant people back then. He's wanting to say, listen, don't elevate your pain over God's promise. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, you've hit that wall. Yeah, you're going, okay, it's easy to say run the race, but I feel like I want to quit. And here's the thing, when we are running that race, you know why we want to quit? Because we are asking ourselves, is this really worth it? This is why I don't run, to be honest. (laughs) Because as much as it would be nice to get rid of this, the pain of running isn't really worth it. (laughs) I'll just keep this, thank you very much. But the race that we're called to run as followers of Jesus is worth it. Jesus himself is worth it. The promises he's made to us are worth it. And it's interesting, too, because I don't know if, uh, if you feel this way, but when I read this, my first thought is, gosh, that seems a bit harsh. Because if you, if you remember the context of, of the book of Hebrews, these are Jewish Christians who are being tempted to walk away from their faith because they're being so persecuted for their faith. These are people that are suffering real things. They're going through real pain. And sometimes it, it seems a bit harsh for, for the writer to say, come on, suck it up, keep running. But again, I don't know if you've had this experience. I've definitely had this experience. When you're in a situation that is difficult and you want to give up and those people come alongside you and they just won't let you give up and you get through that situation, you know who you're most thankful to? The people who wouldn't let you give up. The people that kept pushing you. The people that kept encouraging you. Look, the promise is more valuable than the pain. This is what we need. This is what exhortation is. And the Bible calls us to exhort one another. We need with one another to say to one another, keep running. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep running. It's funny, when it comes to running or sports, a lot of the sort of injuries that we get, some of those injuries we need to stop and we really need to get healed. But a lot of those injuries are things where we just need to stretch and keep going. We need to keep warm. Sometimes the worst thing we can do is stop completely. The author wants these guys to keep running. He's saying, listen, and in fact, it's interesting, he says in verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be dislocated, may not be dislocated, excuse me, but rather be healed. Now again, he seems to be, the author seems to be giving sort of an allusion to what we see in Proverbs chapter four. In Proverbs chapter four, verses 25 to 27, this is what the psalmist writes. He says, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. 
In other words, we need to not just, we need to make sure that we're not elevating our pain over God's promise, but also, listen, we need to be running the right path. So you're pushing yourself, I'm not going to give up running, but you're going the wrong direction. (laughs) That's kind of pointless, isn't it? And the idea here is, 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 again, in this race metaphor, it's don't be, get detoured, don't get pulled off the path, and also don't try to take shortcuts. In fact, a lot of times this is where our injuries come from. Because we think, okay, I want to show myself strong, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the hardest road I can possibly find. You know what that is when we do that? Pride. What does pride come before? A fall. It's unwise. Don't make things harder for yourself than you need to. You don't need to look for trials. You don't need to look for pain. God will make sure the right amount comes into your life. (laughs) What you need to do is is run the right path. Also, don't look for shortcuts. So many times we're looking for a shortcut. How can we make it easier to be a Christian? There is no easy way. There's no easy way to follow Jesus. Simple ways, yes. The way of the cross is, is amazing, profoundly simple. But easy, Not at all. But we're always looking for an easier way, a shortcut. And and, and the idea here that the author is wanting to to bring across, he's saying, no, 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 make straight paths for your feet. Make sure you're looking straight ahead, as as, as Proverbs says. Make sure your eyelids are right before you. Interesting, I have run before. I hate it, but I do occasionally. And what I have found is there's kind of a certain spot that you need to kind of look ahead you know, just like just maybe a certain amount in front of you, maybe six feet, eight feet. If you look too far ahead, you're thinking, I'm never going to get to the end. If you look too low, you're going to trip in or run into a tree like an idiot, you know. So there's a certain kind of uh, f- uh, you, a space you look ahead. Okay, this is kind of, I'm going to that next two meters away, that next two meters away. And you kind of just look, look ahead. It's interesting, too, because in this idea of not so much running, but even walking the path that the, um, the author of the psalm, the psalmist says, talking about that God's Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we're not talking about this super powerful torch that kind of blinds people. We're talking about something that only shows the step in front of them. And so God's saying, stay on this right path. Now, the point is that this is really the author, the writer of Hebrews, saying to the audience, listen, you need to strengthen yourself in God. You need to remember, wait a second, what has God called me to? Because what God has called me to is what God enables me to do. God's calling is God's enabling. Now, this is the thing I think we have to really get through our heads because when it comes on a human, on a human level, if I say to you, come on, you can do this, I, I could be wrong. I could be encouraging you to put an effort towards something you just, you just can't do. I, I've, I know when I was in high school and... Uh, playing sports, and there was a few Christian guys I knew, and we'd get these Letterman's jackets if you made varsity sports. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, Greg does. He's American, but the rest of you know what I'm talking about. It's just like a special jacket you get to show off. Look at me. I'm, a, I'm an athlete or something. I'm a jock. I'm an idiot. Whatever. So you get this jacket, and what would happen is you'd put your nickname, and you'd maybe have embroidered something else. And so a lot of these guys that were Christians would embroider uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Which is, you know, it's a great idea of, uh, you know, it's a great truth that we can do all things that God um, calls us to through Christ. But the funny thing is, is that they're kind of like applying it to football or baseball. And that's not really what the verse means. It doesn't mean that you can be an NFL star if you just believe. No, not everyone's able to do that. So what we're talking about here is not 
me saying, I think you can do this. I'm going to cheer you on to, for you to trust in your own strength to make something happen. That is not what the author's talking about. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about doing the things that God has called us to do. If Jesus says, you come follow me, what does that mean? You can come follow him. His calling is his enabling. And so the author is saying, we need to strengthen ourselves in God. God said, he's called me to follow him. You know what that means? If I'm called to follow Jesus, I can believe that God will give me all that I need to follow Jesus. And they need to not faint, they need to not give up, I need to keep running. Interesting as well, with verse 13, some translators say, some Bible scholars say, that the idea is when it says, um, so that which is lame may not be dislocated, they say, would say that could be translated, so those who are lame may not be dislocated. So the idea is more corporate. The idea is, don't go off the path, don't take a detour, because people are going to follow you that way. And then they could get hurt, or they, could, they would not be in the right place. Interesting thought. The point is, though, we are called, listen, as Jesus followers, to do just that, to strengthen ourselves. Wait a second. I believe what God says, and if God says I can do this, I can do this. This is why the, the Jude, the author of that little teeny epistle that's right before the book of Revelation, Jude, who's a brother of Jesus, Jude writes, keep yourself in the love of God. It doesn't mean keep yourself lovable. My God, look at me. Do you still love me? I'm doing really good, God. That's not it. I, I know sometimes we feel that way, but that is not the real gospel. It's a false gospel. Now, keeping yourself in the love of God means keeping yourself in that place where you're reminding yourself and you're strengthening yourself, I am loved by God. Christ crucified proves it. Christ's resurrection proves it. I'm accepted in Him. I'm going to keep myself right there. I'm not going to run away from that. The ultimate thing I can have, the ultimate thing I can pursue is God who is love. I'm going to keep myself right there. Strengthen yourself in God. Now, he kind of leaves, he walks away from this um, sports metaphor, this running metaphor, and he gets very, very practical. He says in verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, let's notice something here. It's just really too important to neglect. The, the writer says clearly... That whatever holiness is, if you don't have it, you don't go to heaven. I don't know how clear I can make this, okay? He's saying whatever holiness is, if you don't have that holiness, you don't see God. And in case you didn't know this, this is what makes heaven heaven. God's there. If you imagine heaven to be some great place and it doesn't matter if Jesus is there or not, you don't get it. What's great about heaven is whose home it is. It's the home of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He says, without holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. This is really important because he says it's something that we need to pursue. He says he should pursue peace with all men and holiness. The way it's constructed both in English and in Greek is you're pursuing peace with people and you're pursuing holiness. Those things are connected together. So here's a big question. If this is really something that has to do with who we are eternally, how does this work? Well, what we, one of the things that we see in the New Testament is that holiness is always connected to love. It's one of the things that we see in the Scriptures that is something that's really important for us to think about because when I say holy, what do you think about? Some guy in, like, in very sort of long liturgical robes, you know, someone with sort of a, you know, holding a, 
a censer that's like burning incense or something? Chanting? I mean, what do you see when you see holiness? You think of something very formal, very liturgical. Or maybe you think of someone who thinks they're better than everybody else. Oh, they're holier than thou. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of holiness. Or maybe what you think of is somebody who is just really kind of stiff and serious and never seems to enjoy anything about life. But hey, they're pursuing holiness. But none of those pictures actually are what the Scripture means by holiness. Listen, the word holy means distinct. It means set apart. It means that there's something unique about that which is holy, something distinct about what the thing is that is holy. So when the Bible says that our God is holy, actually the angels cry out to Him, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, they're saying that he's distinct beyond distinct beyond distinct, that he is so different than all else that we know, so distinct than all else that we know, that he's highest above all, most valuable. So we talk about holiness, we're talking about something that is distinct, distinct, and it's interesting because that's always connected to love. Because one of the things that makes the God of Scripture so unique is that our God is three in one. And because our God is three in one, we can know that our God is love. Not just that our God does love, but that our God is love. He's distinct that way. All other monotheistic religions see God as just this one solitary being. And that one solitary being cannot love unless, well, unless he creates something, which makes him dependent upon creation. And therefore, guess what? Not distinct. But the God of the Bible, listen, is three in one. He is one, yes, but he's the God in three persons. And that God who is love, guess what? He can be loved without ever making anything else. Which means when God makes all of the universe, he does so because he is love. He does so as an expression of love, not as a way to gain love, but to give it, to express who he is. That means when the Bible says God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, there's a distinction about God that he's showing. It's saying, God's saying, listen, this, this world that I've created, I also want to redeem. And I want to redeem it back to what? My love. This is important. Because when we're talking about pursuing holiness, we're not talking about love in just this idea of kind of sentimentality or I have warm feelings towards somebody or we have really good relationships with each other. All those things are important, but it's bigger than that. It's more distinct than that. So so let me give you an example of how Paul prayed this into people. Paul prays for the church in Thessalonica. Here's what he says. He prays, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, that is, unbelievers as well, Just as we do to you, this is why I notice, so that he, God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Do you understand? Do you see the connection between love and holiness? That Paul prays for the church in Thessalonica that they would increase. They were already a really radically loving church. He says, man, just grow even more. Why? Because God is doing something. He's teaching us to be like Him. He's conforming us to His image. He's making us loving as we pursue love for one another. So this is what we're getting at when we we talk about pursuing holiness. That the author is talking about, listen, he's talking about this reality that we've been rescued from our lovelessness 
to pursue these kinds of distinct relationships. See, when the Bible says, without holiness you won't see, no one will see the Lord, he's not saying your holiness earns a place in heaven. Absolutely not. That as well would be a false gospel. What he's saying is this. God has saved you. God has placed you into his family for this reason, that you might display his holiness, that you might grow into it, and that you might show others of it. That there's a distinction to our God, and that distinction is shown by love. See, here's the thing we have to get through our heads. People talk about this all the time, but they talk about it in such a a low way, in such a base way. We talk about love as if it's just being nice to each other or making the occasional sacrifice or, or, you know, whatever the case. I serve at church because I love those people. Those are all good things. I don't want to devalue those things. But the kind of love that Jesus calls to, the kind of love that we need to pursue in holiness is a love that says, I'm going to lay down my life for your sake. That your needs are more important than mine. See, guys, listen. God calls us to pursue this kind of holiness not because, uh, not because he wants us to prove something to him, because he wants to prove something to us. And he wants to prove something to the world. Jesus says, right, in Matthew chapter 5, hey, if you love those that love you, what credit is that to you? Even tax collectors and heathens do that. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who harm you. Bless those who persecute you. In other words, the people that treat you like rubbish, those are the ones that God says, I want you to reach out and love those people. Jesus said you're gonna, the world's going to know that we're his disciples by how? Love for one another. What, just niceness? A lot of people are nice to each other. No, we sacrifice for each other. This is why, listen, the more diverse our church becomes, the, more, the happier I am. Because the, different, the more different we are, different backgrounds, different ideas, different, <laughs> different colors of skin, different... Uh, different social economic places. You know what that means? It means more chance for us to love one another in a way that's distinct. It means we get a chance to say, you know what, your story is more important than my story. Your needs are more important than my needs because it's the gospel that's at stake here. We want to pursue holiness. Listen, guys, the world doesn't need to see us as the smartest or the coolest or the ones that put on the best show. Guess what? We can't be any of those things anyway. But we should be those who are distinct by our commitment to each other, by our love to each other. Do you know this is why we don't have church membership? The reason we don't have church membership is not because I think it's necessarily wrong, but we don't have church membership because what I've seen happen time and time again is people become a member of the church but never a member of the body. They sign papers. They, they commit to tithe. They serve, but they actually don't love each other. I'll tell you what. Sarah and I get a front row seat of seeing all the junk that happens in our church. All the times when people fall out with each other, when people are angry at us, we're frustrated with them. You know what's really amazing? How God still keeps us together. And we get through that stuff and we say, we're going to choose to love. And as we choose to love by the power of God's Holy Spirit, you know what we are? Distinct. We're pursuing holiness. So he says, listen, verse 14, pursue holiness with all people and or peace with people and holiness without which they will see the Lord. 
But also he says in verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now again, this is not the writer saying, oh, you have to sort of earn this gracious position. It's this idea that make sure that you're, you're trusting in God's grace. You're actually pursuing God's grace to do these things. So falling short of the grace of God is not so much about, um, oh, I, I didn't try hard enough, therefore I don't get God's grace. That's not what it's about. Falling short of the grace of God is similar to what Paul had written to the people in, in uh, Galatia about. He told them that they have sort of, they've strayed from grace because they thought, okay, all right, God started this process to make us his followers, but now we've got to finish the rest by our own strength. That's falling from grace. So falling short of the grace of God is us as Jesus followers thinking we're going to follow Jesus by just our own effort, apart from a work of God's grace. Now, let's remember what grace is. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God saying, I accept you, not because you deserve it, but because I am gracious, because I declare you worthy. And he can do that. He can give us that grace because of Jesus. But grace also, listen, it's not just unmerited favor. It's divine enablement. Divine enablement. In other words, it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I am what I am by the grace of God. Like all the other apostles, I worked, but I worked harder than all the other apostles, but not me, but the grace of God in me. In other words, Paul recognized the reason he was able to do his ministry was because God gave him the grace to do so. He was dependent upon God's grace to do the things that God wanted him to do. Falling short of the grace of God, listen, is when we don't depend on God's grace to do the things that God's called us to do. This is why we tend to settle for less than what God wants. The reason we tend not to be as loving as we could be because we want to love at a level that we can do on our own. So we can pat ourselves on the back. Aren't we loving? Servant Church is such an awesome church. We rock. Our church is the best. (laughs) Bring stone glory to Jesus. Now God's calling us to love in such a way that we go, God, I can't love this way unless you give me the grace to do it. Unless you give me the grace to do it. Remember what uh, the author had written earlier in chapter 4? Of Hebrews, he had said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Guys, God wants to do more in our midst. God wants to knit our hearts together in a way that is just beyond what we've experienced in normal human relationships, but it only happens through grace. And so he calls us, listen, to pursue him for that. To pers- pursuing holiness with others requires a dependence upon God's ever-available grace. Do you realize because of Jesus, there's never going to be a time that you, as, as someone who's put your faith in Jesus, there's never going to be a time that you're going to pray and God's going to go, sorry, not listening. Sorry, you're not praying right. Sorry, I- I'd give you more grace, but I think you need to suffer for a while. Never. That's not the God of the Scriptures. What Jesus has done for us has made a way that we can go right to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can say, God, I need mercy. I messed up again. I've blown it again. And God, I don't know if I can even fix this, but I need the grace to fix this. You know what God says? Here it is. Boosh. <laughs> grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So let's not fall short of it. This is one of the things that I don't know if you do. I do this. Maybe I'm the only one here. But when I mess up and I mess up all the time, I tend to sort of wallow in this sort of guilt, and this sort of like, oh, I'm so bad. 
I can't believe I did this. Oh, you're such an idiot. And you just kind of sit in this dark place. You know what I've realized? When I'm doing that, and those feelings are strong, but you know what I'm realizing when I do that? You know why I'm doing that? Pride. Because I think somehow I can, if I flog myself hard enough, that will mean God will go, okay, well done, you feel sufficiently bad. Now maybe there'll be some mercy. You know, it's stupid. When I blow it, you know what I should do? Come to God and say, God, I blew it. I messed up again. God, forgive me. And Lord, I, I, I don't want to just not do that. I want to do what I should be doing. What I wasn't doing that caused me to do what I shouldn't do. I'm going to do what I should be doing so I don't do what I shouldn't do. Give me that grace. You know I'm going to be confident of according to the scripture? God will give me that grace. This is how we run the race. We run the race by grace. Now, he also says in verse 15, lest any of you, or I'm sorry, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, again, this is the writer making another Old Testament reference. This time, it's from Deuteronomy chapter 29. You don't have to turn there. I should, the, the words should be on the screen. Just take a few slides, but it'll be there. Let me just read the words to you as you see them on the screen from Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is Moses speaking to God's people, the Israelites. He says, but you are not the only ones with whom I am making this covenant with its curses. I am making this covenant both with you who stand here today in the presence of of the Lord our God and also with the future generations who are not standing here today. You remember how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we traveled through the lands of of enemy nations as we left. You have seen their detestable practices and their idols made of wood and stone, silver and gold. I am making this covenant with you, notice, so that no one among you, no man, woman, clan or tribe, will turn away from the Lord our God to worship these gods of other nations. And so that no root among you bears bitter and poisonous fruits. Those who hear the warnings of this curse... (laughs) should not congratulate themselves thinking, I am safe even though I am following the desires of my own stubborn heart. This would lead to utter ruin. Now, I want you to think about this. Deuteronomy is, in fact, the name, the title means second telling. This is Moses retelling the law right before the children of Israel enter into the promised land, enter into Canaan. And he's saying to them, listen, I'm saying this to you because you need to understand you are still going to be tempted to worship false gods. Now, to worship a false god doesn't mean that you necessarily have to bow down to a little statue. Worshiping a false god, having an idol means you can even make something that's good and something that you worship or live for. You make it into a god. It also can mean that you think you're worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but actually you're worshiping a god of your own imagination. That's an idol. If you're making up things about God in your own head, Hold it on to wrong ideas about God in your head, that's idolatry. And so what Moses is, is warning the children of Israel about, he's saying, listen, you're going to be tempted with this, but this covenant with his curses is given to you so you don't go back there. And listen, he says, if you do sort of get drawn into these, these false gods that you've seen in these nations in Canaan, here's what's going to happen. You're going to experience what? Bitter and poisonous fruit. Where does that come from? So what is it that, how does this connect to what the author of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 12 when he says, make sure there's no root of bitterness 
springing up to cause, uh, to cause trouble. One of the things that, that causes us as those who profess faith to become bitter is when we, we profess faith in God, in the God of the Bible, but actually we're following a God of our own imagination. And because we're following a God of our own imagination, when that God doesn't do what we want that God to do, we're bitter, we're frustrated. Another thing that can happen is when we do have the right ideas about who God is, but we think somehow it's not going to be a big deal if we don't obey that God. We just do what we want to do. We're like what it says there at the end of Deuteronomy 29 and verse 19. Oh, I'm safe even though I'm following the dictates of my own stubborn heart. Well, God's not going to judge me. I'm one of his covenant people. Again, really, this is really us not seeing God as a God who's righteous, a God who keeps his word even when it comes to judgment. The point is this. If we're going to pursue holiness with others, that we need to be able to guard our hearts against bitterness, against the bitterness that stubbornly refuses to see God as he is and follow him as he is. Now listen, we just read, didn't we? We just saw in in Hebrews 4 that God's throne is a throne of what? Grace. And we can obtain what there? Mercy and find what to help? Grace. But the reality is this. If we don't think we need that mercy, if we don't think we need that grace, then we're not seeing God as He is. One of the things that worries me about teaching or preaching that wants to make God seem safe is that it's teaching people to think too highly of themselves and too lowly of God. Do you remember in the Chronicles of Narnia? I think it's that, I think it's that book, where they're talking about, um, the kids are talking uh, with Beaver, I think, about, about Aslan. Oh, is he safe? And what does Beaver say? Absolutely no, he's not safe, not safe at all. But he's good. God's not safe. No man can stand in his presence and live, but he's good. He's full of mercy. He's quick to forgive. He gives grace upon grace. If you're bitter against God right now, I want you to understand something, okay? I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm not saying this because I don't have any compassion. I've been there. I've been bitter against God. It's a horrible place to be. But if you're bitter against God, do you know why? It's because you don't see him as he is. And because you don't see him as he is, you don't see yourself as you are, and that's why you're bitter. And God is saying, come to me. God is saying, I'll forgive you. God is saying, let's pursue holiness, a distinction in your relationship with me and your relationship with others. Let's root out that bitterness from your heart. Let's get rid of it. Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen? As it says here, it's going to defile many. Almost done, look at verse 16. He says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his, his, sold his birthright. So we're talking about running this race that's set before us. We've got to strengthen ourselves in God. We need to pursue holiness with others. But also I love the fact that he brings in Esau because it's a reminder that we're called to learn from other people's mistakes. A wise person learns from their own mistakes a wiser person learns from other people's mistakes. 
I tend to be sometimes wise. I, I think, I, I gotta know this for myself. It's like I gotta make every stupid mistake that everybody else makes before I realize that's a stupid mistake. That's so stupid. <laughs> Wisdom would be, you know, Lord, I see the consequence of that. I don't wanna do what they do. I don't wanna go down that road. Now Esau, if you remember the story, Esau uh, was one of two twins, uh, probably uh, fraternal twins, not identical twins, uh, who were born to Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And what had happened is when Rebekah gets pregnant with these twins, God speaks to Rebekah and says, what's going to happen, contrary to the culture, is the older is going to end up serving the younger. Because what was supposed to happen in those days, what did happen culturally, was the older got a double portion of inheritance when their father died, and he became the patriarch of the family. And so God says to Rebecca, when the babies are still before they're even born, listen, I'm, I'm actually choosing um, Jacob over Esau, and Jacob is going to be the one who gets served by Esau. So time goes on, the boys kind of grow up, and uh, Esau's kind of a man's man. He's always out there hunting. Jacob's kind of chilled out with his mom, always kind of in the kitchen doing work. And they have this promise of God, but they start conniving, trying to make this happen. And so basically, Rebecca tells her son, um, Jacob, what I want you to do is I want you to put on some goat hair so you feel hairy like your brother. I want you to go into your dad's tent and I want you to act like your Esau who's bringing the food that your father requested. And he basically deceives his father, Isaac, into blessing him so that he becomes the, the patriarch. He becomes the one who rules the family. Now, what's interesting is that the way he did this, before he did this was, when Esau was out sort of hunting and he came back in and he was tired, there's Jacob in the kitchen kind of cooking up and he says, I'm so hungry, give me some of that lentil stew. And so Jacob says, okay, sell me your birthright for it. I'll give you a bowl of lentil stew for your birthright, for the right to be this progenitor, the right to be this patriarch. And so basically what Esau says is, fine, who cares about that stupid birthright? I'm going to die if I don't eat soon. So uh, he just fills his belly. And then when, he gets, when his father gets deceived and he doesn't get the blessing, we're going to see in a second what happens. But it's interesting. He gives up his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, I like lentil stew. But it'd be kind of stupid to give up a whole inheritance for a bowl of stew. Now, here's the thing. What he's doing is, is he says, it says very clearly in, in, Galatia, or, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter uh, 25, it says that thus Esau despised his birthright. I thought it was nothing. He devalued his birthright. We have a birthright as believers. If we have put our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, if we believe that He is God's Son, that God's, uh, He took on our sin at the cross and God raised Him from the dead, if we believe that, we've been born again by God's Spirit, birthed in the God's family, and we have a birthright. The Bible teaches in, in Romans chapter 8 that we are co-inheritors with Christ. That's our birthright. We are one in one day, soon and very soon, this corruption, this broken, sinful body is going to put on incorruption, a new resurrected body. That's our inheritance. What does it mean to despise that inheritance? It means you do what Esau did. It means 
you say, oh, I'm just so hungry though, I just got to fill my appetites first. What good is an inheritance to me until my father's dead? I need what I need now. Basically, it's you choosing the temporal over the eternal. Man, learn from other people's mistakes. Don't despise your birthright. This is what you have looked forward to, a resurrection. I want you to think about the world that all of us want. A world where people don't sin against each other. They love each other. A world where people know God and love God as he's worthy because that's the world that we're going to come into when Jesus comes back. That's the world that we're going to be resurrected into. This is our inheritance. How stupid is it of us to focus on the here and now when that's what God has in store for us? How foolish is it of us to say, okay, but this is more important? Really? Seriously, is that really more important? You know what I found as well? I found that the more eternally minded I am, the more I long for heaven, the more I actually enjoy this place. It's this irony. It's this thing where if, if I'm thinking about, I need to have joy here. I need to have my most satisfying relationships now. I need to have my hope and what's going to happen when I retire. I need to know that my value is what I experience or how people treat me here. If that's what I think, I'm always miserable because it's never enough. But when I think, Lord, how much more value can I have than being called the Son of God? How much more hope that I can have than to be made like the Son of God and to enjoy Him forever? How much more purpose can I have than letting other people know about that? And then you know what happens? Everything else here makes more sense. I can endure the weaknesses of my relationships because I know that those relationships, those, at least the ones that are in Christ, are eternal and they're going to be perfect one day. I know that, that what I'm hoping for is not just pie in the sky. It's not a daydream. It's a reality. You know why it's a reality? Because Jesus rose from the dead. I can know that. So the author is saying, listen, don't despise your birthright. Because what happened? Verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, what happens? He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, what we read in Genesis 27 is this. We, we see Esau after... He's realized that his father's been duped. His father realizes he's been duped and says, basically, it's too, too much. It says in verse, 20, uh, verse 34 of uh, Genesis 27, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, O oh my father. Basically, he lost the birthright and his, his father said, it's too late. It's too late. See, what, here's what Esau did, and here's the mistake we need to learn from. Not only did he despise his birthright, but listen, he underestimated the consequence of his choices. This is what we do. We underestimate the consequences of our choices. What you choose to do today has consequences. What you choose to do with Jesus has eternal consequences. Don't underestimate it. Don't be like Esau. Don't be, as it calls him, 
a fornicator and a profane person. He calls him a fornicator probably because he could care less about God's standards for his covenant people and he marries Gentiles instead. Calls him a profane person. Some of your versions might say godless because he, could, he, didn't, he didn't care really about what God wanted for him until it was too late. <coughs> until he didn't have access to it anymore. Guys, listen, I think the author of Hebrews is not trying to do anything but encourage these Hebrew believers to press on. He's trying to say, look, you run this race. Run this race. Strengthen yourself in God. Pursue holiness with others and learn from others' mistakes. Run the race. Why? Because you're going to get the price. You're guaranteed to get the prize. For those of you who have begun this race, you've put your faith in Jesus You've publicly confessed your faith in him. Maybe you've been baptized. You believe that his death was enough, his resurrection was enough. You've begun to run the race. Are your hands weighed down? Are your knees feeble? Are you saying, forget it, it's too hard, I just don't want to run this anymore? Because if that's you, listen, don't stop running. Did any of you guys see the video about a month or so ago of the Brown brothers or the, the Brownlee brothers? They're triathletes. They, they ran for a British Olympic team. It's a really cool video. One is about to win this triathlon when he hits the wall in, a, in a, actually a very dangerous way. He starts losing his, his motor skills and his functions and he's wobbling all over the place. And his brother sees this, so his brother runs. Instead of running past him and winning the race, his brother comes alongside puts his arm around him and helps him finish the race, actually pushes him forward across the line. This is what we are supposed to do. This is the distinction of holiness, what it looks like. I am so concerned about you getting over the line, I want to help push you across. If you are stumbling and you think, I don't know what's going on, let someone come alongside you. Maybe we can't see your stumbling, so you need to tell us that you're stumbling. Let us come alongside you so you can finish the race. Your choices have consequences. That's actually good news. The Bible says we'll reap what we sow. That's actually good news. If you sow the Spirit, what do you reap? Everlasting life. But if you've not began the race, or if you think, well, I'm running pretty well, but you're running your own course, you need to know your choices have consequences. You need to realize today, I might never see some of you again, I don't know. You might say, I've got to preach this too long or whatever the case might be and you never come back, I don't know. But here's what I'm going to say to you today, your choices have consequences. And the only race worth running in this life is running with Jesus, after Jesus, for Jesus, to get Jesus. He calls you to follow him. He would say to you by his spirit today, put your faith in me. Trust me. That's what Jesus would say. 